When you head toward Key West down that long causeway on US-1, it's hard not to feel like you're heading for paradise. You can't describe the color. It's blue, it's green, it's just the most remarkable color in the world. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, Bill McKean shares tales of Bohemian Key West, where you can find magic in every sunset. A little up the coast, Rick Garman takes us around Savannah, Georgia, where stately antebellum architecture and leafy public squares intersect with a lively college and art scene. Dripping with not just history, but with uh, live oaks, with Spanish moss, and it's an eminently walkable city. And Pauline Fromer shares how you can enjoy New York City, just like you live there. Grand Central, which was meant to be this introduction to the city, has many of the best elements of New York City in it. Explore three legendary American destinations coming right up on Travel with Rick Steves. Ready for a road trip? Hi, I'm Rick Steves. We'll explore two of the South's legendary and lovely smaller cities, Savannah, Georgia, and Key West, Florida, in just a bit. Let's start our adventures today in the city that everybody has to visit someday, New York City. It's a lot more fun and a lot less overwhelming when you have a local native like Pauline Fromer to show you around. Pauline writes Fromer's Easy Guide to New York City. Pauline, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks. So, Pauline, as I mentioned, you know, we all go to New York, but a lot of people are just, it's kind of overwhelming. Let's just go through the exciting attractions of New York and talk about how we can enjoy them like a local. For instance, Grand Central Station, it's more than just a train station now. It's become quite people-friendly. How do we get the most out of Grand Central Station? Well, actually, they give out a free audio tour. If you uh, have a smartphone with you, you just stop at the information booth and they'll hook you up with it. And it's a really great way to see the station. You know, when the station was built, it was kind of built on this Roman ideal that you were entering a new city and your first vision of it had to be grand and magnificent. Mm. And you see that in the station. The ceiling looks like the night sky. And if you listen to the audio guide, it will tell you about the constellations up there. You go down into the basement and there's a whispering gallery. You can stand on one side of the room Mm. and your friend can stand on another and you can whisper to one another. Uh, You see the oyster bar, which has the same architecture as Ellis Island did. And you learn about all these things on the audio tour. In many ways, Grand Central, which was meant to be this introduction to the city, has many of the best elements of New York City in it. An old train line apparently has been decommissioned and turned into a park, the High Line Park. Mm -hmm. And you can just walk all around town enjoying views from the top of this uh, elevated park. Tell us about the High Line. Well, it's really amazing. This trestle that is the remnant of this train line that used to exist up there was abandoned for years. And for years, very agile people would climb up and find this hidden Mm. park above the city that was planted with weeds that simply blew on the wind there and grew along the tracks. And they were going to tear it down. And a committee of New Yorkers said, no, we want to create a park there. We want to save it. And they've created this gorgeous park And it's so much fun because you're walking outside two stories up, so you Uh, look down from this greenery onto the city streets. It's fabulous. Thank goodness they saved it. I found it so relaxing and enjoyable and invigorating to be in New York above the traffic, surrounded Mm -hmm. by all that great architecture. And I was appreciative of the people who had the vision to save that trestle and turn it into a people-friendly park. And special things happen up there. They've got great little food carts where Mm -hmm. you can make a meal. And one night I remember standing on the edge of the park and somebody stood on a fire escape with (laughs) three people with a little jazz band and they played music for us. Now another icon from the Industrial Age is the uh, Brooklyn Bridge. People are welcome to stroll across the bridge. And uh, in your book you talk about the beautiful views from the other side. Talk about the Brooklyn Heights. Brooklyn Heights was the very first area of the city to be deemed a historical landmark area to be preserved. And when you go there, you understand why. It is just pristine and beautiful. Mm. And you walk along the promenade and you get the very best views of the Manhattan skyline, of the Statue of Liberty. Mm. It's a very up, a well-to-do neighborhood. So you get a vision of where the, you know, the one percenters live. It's uh, The good life. But the promenade is wide open to everybody, and that's one of the great sights of New York, isn't it? And the architecture is gorgeous Mm, there, just gorgeous. 
I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Pauline Fromer, born and raised in New York City, and now Pauline's raising her own kids in New York City. Pauline, your kids are, what, 10 and 14 years old now? Yep. Oh, yeah. Whoa. They ride the subway every morning to school. Oh, they're New Yorkers. Now, how did they help you write your new book? Did you, did you have a, I, I would imagine it was uh, a little easier as a mom with two kids to cover the kids in New York chapter. Well, it's funny. We have a new museum in New York that just opened in, I think it was late 2012. Every time they misbehaved, I would say to them, if you do that again, I'm taking you to the Museum of Math. <laughs> But we finally went, and it's really great, actually, and they loved it. But while it was being built, that was always the, don't do that or you're going to the Museum of Math. <laughs> the Museum of Math. It's really for kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, a, it's a really good kids' museum where they take mathematical concepts and they do them in very creative ways. Like you learn about Galileo and you learn about, they have mm-hmm. like a bike with square wheels that then they have you ride in a landscape that allows the square wheels, and Mm -hmm. that's teaching you something about math. I'm not sure what. (laughs) My kids probably know better than I. Now, with kids, a bike tour might make a lot of sense. All over Europe these days, I'm enjoying bike tours. Are there good bike tours for a visitor to New York City? Yeah, people are very surprised at how bike-friendly New York has become. And just in the last several months, our city bike program has opened up. You pay $9 a day. And you can ride unlimited bikes all over the city. There are bikes everywhere now and bike lanes. This is one of those systems where you pay a little money and it's subsidized by the city to help traffic congestion and you unplug the bike, you pedal it around and park it at a similar rack anywhere else in town? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, and okay. and I hear it's actually hurting our taxi drivers. Yeah. They're not so happy <laughs> that the bikes are there because a lot of people are simply hopping on a bike and going the 10 blocks they need to go rather than hailing a taxi. But it's changed the whole complexion of the city. Uh, It's been really, really wonderful. And Hmm. Mayor Bloomberg created bike lanes in many areas. So it's not as dangerous to bike in New York City as it used to be. It's really a wonderful, wonderful new way to experience the city. So it's a city that is changing. I read, I think it was in your blog, you wrote about a non-tour tour. Tell us about this. Uh, it just seems like a very creative way to get beyond just the famous sites and connect with the edgy culture of New York City. Well, you know, New York is a city of artists, and the artists need to make a living. And so there's a company called Elastic City that is giving performance artists access to tourists and an outlet for their creativity. And you do a tour with them, but it's not the standard tour. For example, you might experience what it's like to walk down the street blindfolded and you have somebody at your side so you don't, you know, walk into traffic. (laughs) Or they might take you to the beach in Coney Island and you look at all of the architecture in Coney Island and then together you write with sticks a poem in the sand about your experience. And so you become an artist for a day. So this is uh, Elastic City. You do all City. kinds of wacky things. Elastic City. And, you know, an added advantage of that or bonus of that is you're just getting to know a local avant-garde artist, and that's such a thriving community in New York City. Yeah, and, and you become a bit of a tourist attraction. I, we were in a playground <laughs> picking up pieces of trash and trying to create an art installation with it, and a teenager came up to us and asked if we were shrooming, and we were like, uh, no, no, we're sober. <laughs> we're just being artistic. If you want to go to Times Square, that's sort of a cliché. It's ultra-touristy. What's your take on Times Square for visitors? How do we best enjoy that? You don't go until the sun goes down. Mm-hmm. Because Times Square in the daylight looks really dirty and tawdry, I think. Mm-hmm. But when the sun is down and you see all the lights, it is it's the lights, wonderland. Isn't it? it is the energy of the lights. It's the lights. And you know, the lights are there by law. Every building that fronts Times Square hmm. has to have a certain number of lights on it by law. Uh, they oh. want, and everywhere else in the city, you're not allowed to have that many lights. But this is the part of the city that just glows at night. And I have to say, now that Bloomberg created a huge pedestrian walkway in the middle of Times Square, you can really enjoy it a lot more easily. There are tables set out. The TKTS booth where people get discount theater tickets can now be climbed. Hmm. And so you can sit at the top of that and just breathe in all the lights and the bustle. And it's a really great experience now after dark. It sounds like if you haven't been to New York for a while, it's a new city in a lot of ways. Have you been to the Museum of the Moving Image? Oh, it's one of my favorites. It's one of my favorites. 
It is a museum that is dedicated to the arts of film, television, and video games. And it's not about the performers. It's really about the technical aspects mm. of those arts. So you get to do all kinds of fun, interactive things. It's great with kids. For example, you might go into a dubbing booth to learn how they dub movies, and you get to dub your voice over Julie Andrews and the sound of music. Or you go into another booth and you, you cut film. Or you go into another area and you learn how they made the classic video games and you get to play Pac-Man again. Wow. And they have wonderful evening viewings of movies where they bring in the directors and the stars and you get to talk back to them. It really is a very, very special place. It's in Queens, so a lot of tourists are nervous about going there, but it's literally two subway stops from Manhattan. Very hmm. easy to get there. Sounds fascinating. And the moving image is such a story. I mean, we've come a long way since people were swinging flaming sticks to give us something to look at. <laughs> Native New Yorker Pauline Fromer has taken us to some of her favorite parts of New York City on Travel with Rick Steves. You can listen to earlier visits we've had with Pauline about New York, Las Vegas, and Washington, D.C. Look for a link in this week's show details in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Let's close with just what's the, is there some newest monument that we should be sure to know about when we visit New York City? Well, it's the newest and one of the oldest. Louis Kahn in the 1970s, the famed architect, decided that he wanted to create a monument to FDR that would be on Roosevelt Island. And he drew up the plans for it and then he died before he was able to bring it to fruition. Hmm. And his son took this up as a cause and it took over 30 years, but the Four Freedoms Park has now opened on Roosevelt Island. Part of the fun of seeing it is you take the Roosevelt Island tram, uh, so you get these great views of New York City as you you know, float above the city. You actually can see into people's apartments, which is kind of fun. Mm. And then you walk to this very, very sober but moving monument to FDR, seeing fabulous views of the city. Not many people go there, so you'll probably be alone when you visit. And it's one of the most serene Zen places in the city. Sounds um, great. Just opened in 2012 and so worth seeing. The Four Freedoms Park. All right. Pauline Fromer, author of Fromer's Easy Guide to New York City. Hey, it's exciting that you and your dad are relaunching the series. We'll look forward to more Fromer's Easy Guides. And uh, thanks so much for sharing a little bit Actually, quite a bit about your hometown, <laughs> New York City. Well, thank you. It's been an honor. I say goodbye to all my sorrows and by tomorrow I'll be on my way. I guess the Lord must be in New York City. If you'd rather visit a smaller city, someplace more laid back than New York, then head south. Up next on Travel with Rick Steves, we explore the elegance of Savannah and the tropical enchantment of Key West. We're at We're in the middle of what you might call a virtual road trip down the east coast of the USA today on Travel with Rick Steves. We'll end up where US-1 begins in Key West in just a bit. Right now, we're taking time to explore Savannah. The state of Georgia was born by the river in Savannah, which is the oldest city and the original colonial capital of that state. The charm of the old south of Savannah drips off the trees in one of the country's largest national historic landmark districts. It's designed for exploring on foot, 
with nearly two dozen historic public squares that offer their own reasons for resting a spell in the shade. It also doesn't take long to recognize the youthful vibe that gives an endearing energy to Savannah and to understand why it's a favorite with more than 12 million visitors a year. Introducing us to the hostess city of the South is Rick Garman. For much of the summer, Rick shows Americans the history, art, and cuisine of Europe as a professional tour guide. But his home base is in Hilton Head, South Carolina. And that's an easy drive to Savannah. Rick's here to show us why Savannah ranks high on his list of must-see places. Rick, welcome. Glad to be here. So what's so good about Savannah? Savannah is a great city. As you said, it's historic. It's just a wonderful city. It's also dripping with not just history, but with uh, live oaks, with Spanish moss, just blowing in the wind and so forth. And it's an eminently walkable city. It has the largest national historic district in the United States, and yet it's all flat. So you can walk, or you can take a walking tour, or any of the trolley tours or whatever. It's just wonderful to do that. Living here in the Northwest, it's it's hard to imagine a city in the United States going back that far. But do I understand uh, Savannah was started way back in the early 1700s? Yeah, I know you guys in the, the West Coast think that's pretty <laughs> early. That's the last <laughs> colony. Georgia was actually founded in the 1730s to try to keep the Spanish away who were down in Florida. So they were trying to keep them away from South Carolina and so forth where they had all the rich plantations. So in 1733, they landed on the shores of the Savannah River, found a nice bluff, and... Uh, started marking out a, the first planned city in the United States. So it's actually a grid plan with a lot of squares. A grid plan, and actually it was set out very nicely so that they could expand it with the same kind of replicate the squares over and over. And they ended up with a total of 24 squares in the historic district. People throw on this term when they're traveling in the south, antebellum, antebellum architecture. Exactly what is that? Uh, that's basically the time period before the war. And when we're talking about the war here, we're talking about the Civil War. So uh, some people considered any time after the foundation of the United States, you know, the revolution up to the time of the Civil War. In a lot of the South, it's actually after the War of 1812. So it's really the 1800s up until about 1860 or so. And for something to survive the Civil War, that's actually quite an accomplishment because one of the tactics of the Civil War, if you were a Union general, was just to blow everything down, wasn't it? What? Well, everybody knows about General Sherman and the March to the Sea, and you've right. all seen you know, the burning of Atlanta and everything. Well, the March to the Sea ended at Savannah. So, I mean, literally, he torched his way across the Georgia countryside. And then later in the spring, he did the same thing through the Carolinas to go north and and join uh, Grant. Savannah was incredibly fortunate because Sherman needed a winter headquarters. Oh, my goodness. And he he literally arrived, you know, in Savannah uh, the day before Christmas, took over Savannah and didn't burn it because he needed to house all his troops and everything. And he sent his famous telegram to uh, Lincoln presenting Savannah as a Christmas present to the president. And to this day, we travelers can enjoy, just like the residents of Savannah, a city that survived Sherman. Survived Sherman. In the Deep South. And partly because of that, it was actually more profitable and prosperous after the war than many other cities. So there was a lot of building that was done after the, the so war, So it's a too. pretty lucky city. It's a very lucky city, yes. And we're very lucky today, yes. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Savannah, Georgia with Rick Garman. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Linda's on the line from Wilmington, North Carolina. Hi, Linda. Thanks for your call. Uh, Hello. Yeah, so you're from North Carolina. Uh, We're talking about Savannah in Georgia. What's your take on Savannah? Well, we've been there once, and I should tell you that we're actually northerners, and we've retired in North Carolina. And we found out on a visit to Charleston uh, when we said we were from Virginia at that time what a difference there is, but... uh, (laughs) The experience in Savannah was wonderful, absolutely wonderful. The squares were beautiful. But I was wishing, we've traveled around Europe, and I was wishing I had your take on places to stay in Savannah. You know, we stayed in a a typical hotel, and it was very nice. But I thought perhaps there might be, you know, B&Bs such as the ones that you have educated us about Rick Garman, are there charming little B&Bs and guest houses to stay at in Savannah? There are. Um, since I live so nearby, I don't usually spend the night in Savannah, but a lot of my friends that have come down, just like you did, Linda, and wanted to spend a couple nights, uh, they've gone one of two ways. One, uh, there's a lot of bed and breakfasts. A lot of the historic homes have been renovated, and at least part of the homes are, are bed and breakfasts and so forth. There's a couple sort of palatial uh, renovated houses that are hotels, too. But most people end up doing what you do, Linda, because uh, the hotels that are downtown in the historic district, you know, the Hampton, the Holiday Inn Express and so forth, run very good specials. And as long as you're down in the historic core, 
you're walkable. So I don't know where you stayed. I'm, I'm curious, but if you stayed in the historic uh, core... Well, you, I, think, I think it was the Hampton. Yeah, I mean, you, you're right there in the walkable area, weren't you? So right. uh, there are a lot of historic bed and breakfasts. They're not necessarily cheaper than the hotels, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, in Europe, a bed and breakfast is often an economic alternative, and it can be kind of simple accommodations. But I think in the United States, B&Bs are oftentimes pretty frilly and fancy and, and full of good service and, and little extras, and, and you don't save a lot of money over a hotel, but you do get that charming experience. Linda, did you enjoy just the ambience of walking? Uh, you know, these squares sound very interesting. Did you get a sense the city was planned back in the 1700s? You did. You really did. You, we did the old town trolley tours, and we did the, uh, you know, just walking as much as we were able to walk. Right. And we really enjoyed the squares. They were beautiful. And I think that, well, you know, the old pink house everybody knows about, but that's probably what will bring us back. I don't know the Old Pink House. What's that? The Old Pink House is a restaurant. There was an appetizer there that I recall was of a deep-fried lobster. The Old Pink House is just a place that people should go. I mean, we did. there are, there are three places that they tell you to go in Savannah, and there's, we, we skipped the Paula Deen things. We tried the Mrs. Wilkes boarding house, which was nice. It was the nice thing about that for us being Northerners, was, you know, meeting people in line. There's a long wait in line. And we really did enjoy it, so we're glad we went. But the food there, for people who are from the South, they said it's like, you know, something everybody's grandmother Mm. has made. And it was wonderful for them. That wasn't as familiar to us. It was good, but it was not familiar to us. The old pink house was absolutely probably the best, best meal I think we have ever had. Linda, thanks for the call, and and we'll remember that on our trip to Savannah. Well, good, and I'll look forward to hearing more. Rick, any comments on what Linda was talking about? And by the way, she mentioned she was so charmed by the squares. Specifically, what's it like? What are the? I mean, a lot of towns have squares. What's the big deal? Well, they were they were laid out uh, just large enough to be public parks for each little quadrant. And okay. uh, I mean, as they grew, they got more squares. There's not 24 today because a couple of them have disappeared over the years. I think they're down to about 18 real squares in the historic district. And they each have a slightly different personality. Believe it or not, if you've been around for the last few years, you've probably seen the squares in Savannah. For instance. Remember this famous scene with Forrest Gump on the bench? Well, that was Chippewa Square in Savannah, Georgia. That's so classic. And, and he, he was so tidy on that little bench, and the square was so tidy, too. Yeah, surprisingly, of course, this is the magic of Hollywood. That <laughs> bench didn't exist, oh. um, but it does now because they had to put a bench there because everybody came looking for the Forrest Gump bench. And the bus, by the way, that comes by, it's going the wrong way. If you actually went there today, the buses and everything <laughs> else go the other direction on the square. But uh, that's just an example. I mean, you look at that square, and it looks, as you say, like a very tidy little square. Mm-hmm. Some of them are absolutely gorgeous. They have a monument in it and so forth. Uh, but they, many of them have the, the live oak trees, the flowers, and so forth. They're little parks that are about two or three blocks away. Rick Garman's our guide to the southern charm of Savannah, Georgia, right now on Travel with Rick Steves. You can share your own tips for exploring legendary American cities with us. There's a feedback form that you can post to. It's in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Rick, we're talking about how tidy the squares are, but it's also a university town. It's got the energy of a university town. Tell us about how that affects the, uh, the whole energy of the city. First of all, the city is actually a fairly small city, about 150,000 people, which is you know not overly large, but it lives a lot larger than that. Part of the reason is it has universities. I mean, some people have compared it to Austin or Boston or something. There's Savannah State College, and it's a historically black university. There's Armstrong Atlantic. But the big one in town that really impacts the downtown historic area is the Savannah College of Art and Design. It's only about 30 years old. It's a private university, but it is the world-renowned art and design school. Wow. Uh, there, there, are other, there are other campuses are in Provence and Hong Kong. 30 years old and already established is yes. such a, a great... And, and they've actually really impacted the, uh, the city in a couple of ways. First of all, they have 10,000 students mm-hmm. from all different states, and about one out of every six students is foreign. So, you know, we're talking about a, a really interesting, eclectic, cultural mix of people. Uh, they're all studying art and design, and that's not just art. That is industrial design, you know animation. This is going to be stimulating for Forrest Gump to have all these people from well, the world coming yeah, in. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, Forrest would have been if he'd been there. They tell me that even Pixar and people like that come up to study what they're doing in the animation area and everything. 
But the other thing that SCAD, as they're called, Savannah College of Art and Design, SCAD, the other thing they've done is over the period of the 30 years they've been around, they've bought and renovated about 50 of the buildings in downtown historic core. So those are their campus buildings. Those are their office buildings. So they're also part and parcel of doing all the renovations and revitalization of the historic core. So it's not a traditional campus as such. No. They've just uh, taken over buildings all over the right. downtown. Spread core. all over the place. And that probably revitalizes the economy quite nicely. Plus, of course, they, they sponsor you know, a music festival, a film festival. They have you know, art galleries. All their professors and everybody else, of course, are very art and design oriented. And so that brings in a lot of different people. Because I was going to ask you about festivals, because Savannah is known for its festivals. And uh, it's a relatively small town with some pretty big and crazy festivals. They have a lot of, you know, music and film festivals. They also have uh, their version of Austin's South by Southwest uh, that they sponsored just before, so they have all this alternative music coming into town, both for the students and everybody else. The big one is the St. Patrick's Day celebration. It's actually the biggest, second biggest in the United States, next to Boston, of course, but there's a couple things to keep in mind. They attract three to 400,000 people. Now, this is in a city of 150,000, so you can imagine what that does. And it's basically a three- or four-day celebration. Yes, they have a parade and everything, but it's also you get your beer cup and you can walk around town. Some people have actually said that it's like Mardi Gras in New Orleans, but without the public nudity. Uh, (laughs) I think that sounds very nice. 400,000 people having a great time but keeping their clothes on. Yes. Okay, now just to wrap up our discussion of Savannah with uh, Rick Garman here, what are some of the historic buildings we might visit? And with all this history, I imagine it comes with a few ghosts actually been named one of the most haunted cities in the United States, uh, partly because it was supposedly built on Indian burial grounds and all sorts of other things like that. I think the Spanish moss has a lot to do with it, too. I mean, you just can't look at Spanish moss swaying in the wind without feeling a little eerie or That's true. You described it earlier as a town dripping with history, and it's dripping with the vegetation in the town, and that kind of complements all the history that's been there. Yes. Uh, There's a number of famous houses that you can go through. A couple of my favorite ones One is the Juliet Gordon Lowe House. Uh, Anybody that's ever been a Girl Scout in the United States will recognize that name. That is the person that founded the Girl Scouts in the United States. Her home is available to go through. It's actually owned and operated by the Girl Scouts today. And it's decorated in Victorian style, late 1800s, which is very unusual, but it's uh, it's a very good house to go through. Another one is the Mercer Williams House. It's a wonderful house. It was started to be built before the Civil War, but was not completed because of the war and was completed in the 1870s. And uh, it was actually built for the Mercer family, and then they had to sell it. Surprisingly, the Mercers that it was built for were the ancestors of Johnny Mercer, who people may know as the, the writer of Moon River and a number of other uh, good songs. He's from Savannah. Mercer Williams' house is also famous because if you ever read the book The Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, that was the, the main scene. It was the murder scene in that house. And Jim Williams, who was the owner of the house and a big renovator of houses and an art collector, was the person that lived in that house. That today is owned by his sister, and it is available for tours. It's actually a very good house to go through. Another one that really is worth going through for both historical reasons and to see an interesting house is the the Green Meldron House. It's a really strange house because it has a lot of iron work in it, sort of like New Orleans and everything. Uh, But it's also the house that General Sherman had as his house when he was headquartered in Savannah. So it has a lot of that kind of history, too. So there's lots of those kind of houses to go through. Let me just put a plug in, though. If you have any chance at all, come in late March. Late March, a volunteer organization runs a four-day open house tour situation. Now, where that would be worth You go through for. real people's houses. I mean, they somehow, you know, strong-arm these people to open up their houses for charity. And you get to go through all these renovated houses and restored houses uh, in downtown Savannah. And these Uh, would be old 19th century houses? Most of them are from the 1840s through the 1880s, and people have restored them or revitalized them after they were turned into, you know, apartment tenements or whatever. Mm -hmm. There are people really living in there, and you get to go through them, you pay your money and everything. There's also a lot of other events during that time period. Late March is a great time to come. And Rick, if I'm interested in Civil War history uh, in and around Savannah, just very quickly, what are the highlights? Um, battles in that area were not as extensive because obviously Sherman came in and kind of moved everybody out. Really, to tell you the truth, there's not significant Civil War battles that you would really mm-hmm. want to go out and seek. There's a lot of other uh, historic monuments around Civil War, not just Sherman, but... Uh, so mostly what we're talking about is things that survived the Civil War rather than Civil War-related sites. Right. There's actually some Revolutionary War battles that were there. And actually, the British withstood a a very long siege by the American armies. And if anybody knows of General Pulaski, 
If you're from the New York area, the Pulaski Highway is named after General Pulaski, a, a Polish general that came over to help mm-hmm. the Americans. He was killed in the Battle of Savannah while they were attacking the British. So it's actually, there's a lot more Revolutionary War battle history there. So much history, and it survives in Savannah, Georgia. Rick, you've been going to Savannah for years. Next time you go, what's the first thing you're going to do when you get back to Savannah? I love walking the old streets and, if possible, going through the old houses and everything. And then what I like to do is juxtapose that with modern Savannah. I like to go to some of the art galleries. There's a restaurant I like to go to called Jazzed, which is you walk down these stairs in the old basement of the old five and dime. You you think you're going into like an old speakeasy. You open the door and it's this modern art on the wall and everything. And it's a tapas type place. And it's just sort of a head spinning kind of thing to do old historic, you know, squares and houses and then go to this 21st century vibe, you know, art and all this kind of stuff going on. So I, I tend to do something like that each time I'm in Savannah. And I'm sure enjoying a good, warm Southern welcome. Yes, that's the other thing I didn't mention about, of course, uh, St. Patrick's Day in in Savannah. It's usually about 70 degrees there as opposed to Boston's temperature. (laughs) A warm Southern welcome temperature-wise and with the local people you'll meet. Rick Garman, thanks so much for a little better understanding of Savannah, Georgia. Savannah is Georgia's first city. (laughs) One more Sunday in Savannah Hear the whole creation shout and praise the Lord. Have you ever tried to convey your impressions of cities and landscapes you've visited in the form of a haiku poem? There's a link for sending us your original haiku in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Here's what some of our listeners recently sent us, describing some of the scene in the state of Oregon. Cindy Williams of Grapevine, Texas, enjoyed visiting the Pacific coast at Cannon Beach. Come to Haystack Rock. Creatures of air, land, and sea feel the energy. Jillian Leslie from suburban Sherwood, Oregon, sends us this sketch of Portland. Beauty unrivaled. Fir trees stretch to kiss the sky. Portland, Oregon. Leslie DeLucia of Urbana, Illinois, wrote this haiku about Portland after visiting friends there more than a decade ago. Early morning dark, graying velvet afternoon, effortlessly dow. Well, Charles McLean describes his city like this. Hard on the issues, Portland soft on the people. Green, kinder, gentler. If you drive as far south as you can in the continental USA and then keep going on Highway 1, you reach Key West, Florida. Up next, we hear about the legendary characters who gave Key West its tall tales and its status as the Conk Republic. It's Travel with Rick Steves. It's the tropical island getaway with a famous sunset view at the start of U.S. Route 1, Key West, Florida. It's barely four miles square. The town's laid-back atmosphere comes complete with chickens strolling in the streets and seven-toed cats lounging in the shade. Key West was a magnet for writers and artists back in the 30s and in the 70s. They often went there to reinvent themselves or just soak up the atmosphere of that never-ending cocktail party. Tennessee Williams, Hunter S. Thompson, Jimmy Buffett, and, of course, Ernest Hemingway. They're just a few of the notables who've left a mark on the island. In fact, this year's annual Hemingway Days Festival starts on July 15th. Joining us right now on Travel with Rick Steves with stories from the Conk Republic is William McKean. He chairs the journalism department at Boston University, and he's the author of Mile Marker Zero, The Movable Feast of Key West. Bill, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Key West has really been a magnet for literary types. You compare it to Paris of the 1920s. You know, it, it kind of was. Hemingway, of course, is the one that sort of put it on the literary map and lived there for a decade or so. But it was also Robert Frost and Wallace Stevens and uh, Tennessee Williams moved there in the 40s. But there was a real great collection of talent that was there in the in the 1970s, uh, including Thomas McGuane and then Jim Harrison, eventually Jimmy Buffett, uh, you know, Philip Caputo, Shel Silverstein, you name it, they're there. But I, I focused on the McGuane, Harrison, uh, Buffett group in my book. And why did you focus on them? Because they had a really good story to tell. I th- I think that Tom McGuane was sort of a rock star of writers back in the beginning of the 70s. You didn't have to read books to know who he was. He was this 
tall, lanky, long-haired, crazy, hippie writer that everyone, all the critics were calling the new Hemingway. And so there he was living in Key West, sort of baiting that, that challenge. At the time, I'm sure it, was, it opened a lot of doors to be the new Hemingway. I think it became kind of an irritating thing for him. But, you know, there he was, kind of on Papa's turf, there to, to face off and, and sort of prove his literary chops. And, of course, he went on beyond being the new Hemingway and just became Tom McGuane, which is, in my view, at least a great American institution in, in literature. But also, he struggled a lot in the 70s, and he had a... Uh, a reputation as this uh, crazed alcoholic drug abuser nicknamed Captain Berserko, and he came out of it. And I saw this book as, as being a book with a happy ending because here's a guy that, you know, redeemed himself through his talent and through his will, and there was a period there in the in the mid-'70s where I think he had three wives in three years. Well, now he's been married to the same woman for 35-plus years, hasn't had a drink, a drug, or anything in 35 years, so... I, I responded to that part of the story, to his redemption. You know, reading your book, it, it occurred to me a lot of these people went down there and, and they kind of found what they needed, and then they end up going to Montana or something like that and living happily ever after. Well, you know, the thing about paradise is that it can be dangerous. The whole culture there in Key West seemed to circulate, at least in that era, around drug and alcohol abuse, and finally there was just too much fun, and they, they had to escape. In fact, uh, all of my main characters sort of have this wistful memory of Key West, and they loved it, and it was an important part of their life. McGuane told me, I, I wouldn't want that part of my life removed because so much came from it, but it was, uh, it was kind of a difficult time, I think, for a lot of them. But obviously, Jimmy Buffett went there as a failed country singer, and he, and he found the lost court of the tropics. I mean, he, he sort of took Key West and turned it into his career. So there's a lot of good that came out of it, but also they felt this need to get away from it. So do you think they went there, all these literary greats and, and wonderful artists and musicians and so on, did they go there primarily just to play and, and be hedonistic, or did they realize that was sort of um, tools of the trade and they were going there to do their art? I think there's a little bit of both. I think when I talked to all my main characters, McGuane and Harrison and Russell Chatham, the painter, it was always, well, we went there to fish, and they did <laughs> go there to fish, but also there's a, a really splendid isolation about Key West, and it's such a a wonderful community, even to this day, even though it's quite different than it was in the 70s, you're just sort of on your own, and you're you're away from the rest of the world. I mean, the, the island is two by four, just two miles by four miles, and, you know, you have to deal with people. I mean, if you live on an island, you have to be a lot more tolerant. So you get a wider range of people. You have this real laissez-faire attitude. Mm. You know, you can be a, a famous writer that, you know, might be accosted on the streets in, you know, Boston or New York or whatever, but you go to Key West and it's, ah, it's him. It's Hunter Thompson, yeah. big deal. These guys, like, they must be legendary in that little town. Tell me a, a Hunter S. Thompson story. Well, I don't know if I could tell you too many Hunter S. Thompson stories that would be heard in a family radio station, <laughs> but uh, that was the the place he disappeared to. In the 1970s, he was kind of the most famous writer in the world, and he was so famous he couldn't work anymore because, after all, he was supposed to be a journalist. And he got in this uh, horrible mess with cocaine. It was the one drug that he didn't really seem to be able to accommodate in his drug diet. And he was also in the middle of a divorce, and so he kind of went to Key West as a retreat. He, he was anonymous there in a way. I mean, people knew he was Hunter Thompson, but nobody bothered him. But he uh, he loved driving around the town in this big old, I think it was an Electra 225. Uh, it was a convertible. They call them conk cruisers down there, these gigantic boats of cars. Well, he got a bullhorn, and he would drive down the street, you know, well over the speed limit, you know, get out of my way, you sleazy creeps, and, and yelling things through the bullhorn at people. And for a while, he was the babysitter for um, my friend Tom Corcoran, who's one of the main characters in the book. Tom and his wife were juggling different jobs, and they had a an 8-year-old son at home. And, you know, if one of them couldn't make it home, they'd call Hunter and say, would you go mind looking in on Sebastian until we get <laughs> off from Thompson work. Thompson as a babysitter? Whoa. Yeah, he's the babysitter. In fact, Sebastian's a grown man today, but he <laughs> refers to Thompson as Uncle Hunter. Anyway, Thompson would pull up in the yard, he would miss the driveway, and he'd have his bullhorn and say, Sebastian, I have arrived. Turn on the nightly news. <laughs> <laughs> so everybody in town knew who Hunter Thompson was because he was this crazy guy that drove around the bullhorn. They may have never read anything that he'd written, but they accepted right. him just because eccentricity is kind of the norm in Key West. Big personalities, eccentrics, artists, bohemians. I'm speaking with William McKean. His new book is Mile Marker Zero, The Movable Feast of Key West. 
Bill, you married into Key West, and you didn't marry somebody who went down there to escape. You you read how she has family roots that go way back. Right. In fact, her uh, grandfather had moved there in the 1930s as a teenager, working for his father as they rebuilt the remains of the overseas railroad and turned it into the overseas highway. And he built most of the major structures in Key West through his, his company. The other side of my wife's family is a Cuban family that's been there for a couple of generations. And her grandmother was a, used to play in a Cuban jazz band. So I felt that having that kind of background, this kind of entree, uh, really helped out a lot. In fact, when I wanted one of the locals to talk to me, and they might be a little suspicious, I'd drop a couple of names, and pretty soon mm. we realized we had some people in common. For the old-time locals, like your wife's family, uh, all these other people can come in, chase their muse, have a good time, get some stories, take good notes, make some music, and then get it done and go home. For the old-time locals, they're there. Is, is Key West a paradise, or is it a trap? I think they would say it's a paradise because they've been there so long. I, I do think if you've lived in Key West a long time and the mortgage is paid off and you can afford to stay there, it's great. And I think you do have to keep keep your pleasure in line because it is possible to have too much fun, as some of the characters in the book will tell you. And I think if you, you manage to keep that in control, you're, you're doing okay. But it is a culture that has a lot, a lot of it based in alcohol. You know, the happy hour starts at 11 in the morning. Mm. There are people at Schooner Wharf when it opens at 9 a.m. who mm. are getting the first beer of the day. So ah. it's a culture really built around a lot of that. And I think it's uh, that's uh, one of the things about it that could be dangerous. But if you've been there forever, this has been your life. It's not like everyone there is, uh, is an alcoholic or has had a problem like that. But It sounds like there's a there's an appreciation just of, of life, whether it's alcohol-fueled or not. I mean, you write beautifully about how people are proposed proprietary about their sunset. Right. You know, the the sunset is, it's like a place where everyone goes. And they all watch the sun slip beneath the water, the little green flash at the end. And it's just a, a wonderful thing to look forward to every day. But as as I also said in the book, I, I love waking up there because, you know, <laughs> you hear a rooster crow in the street. You get up, you go down to the corner, you get your Cuban coffee, and you you listen to all these guys talking politics about this island 90 miles away. It's just a, a great place to go. I, I love visiting there. I'm so glad that I have family there and we get to go fairly often. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Bill McKean. And Bill's book is Mile Marker Zero, The Movable Feast of Key West. Bill's got an interactive website where you can learn more about the characters that gave Key West its flavor. And that's simply williammckeen.com, William McKean, M-C-K-E-E-N. Bill, I'm sort of in the business of sending people to these exciting places and hoping they, they really have a, a worthwhile time and are, are satisfied. And so many places, like Key West, have a big reputation. You know, it was in the 70s, everybody was there. And they go there today, and all they find is tourists looking for that magic. Are you likely to be disappointed when you go to Key West today? You know, I've thought about this a lot because uh, I lived in South Florida when I was a child and we'd go to the Keys almost every weekend. And then I moved to Florida as an adult and would go there frequently. And as much as you might say about the development and the upper Keys in particular and this change and that change and all that, the fact is the Keys are still the Keys and Key West is still Key West. And driving into Key West is one of the most remarkable, amazing, beautiful things you can do on this earth. Now, that's quite a statement. And one of the most beautiful things you can do in the search, take us there. You're in your, uh, I guess you're not in a, a conk, what do you call it, a conk car? Conk cruiser. A conk. No, I'm usually yeah. in uh, some kind of SUV because okay. I have so many kids. Whatever, you're coming down this elevated highway. Tell me what it's like. We're driving from Florida, and we're going to go down to Key West. I, I, it just sounds so great. You know, when when you hit the upper keys and you're driving through Key Largo, you think, what, what, these are the keys? What's up? You know, because there's Publix grocery stores and all this stuff along the road. But when you get down past, uh, I think it's Tavernier, you go over this big bridge at Jewfish Creek, and then all of a sudden it's just like there, there's not room for that much development. And it's just this beautiful ribbon highway that's kind of cutting across this water, and you can't describe the color. It's blue, it's green, it's this, it's that. It's just the most remarkable color in the world. And I remember driving down there about 10 years ago with my grown son and just Every 30 seconds, we would just look at each other and go, my God, this is beautiful. And so it's it's that way from uh, Isla Morada all the way down to Key West. And it's just a wonderful drive. It's just a wonderful feel. And I'm a sort of a road warrior. I've written other books about travel, about 
you know, riding Highway 61 down the middle of the country and all this. But I think that's one of the most beautiful hmm. drives I've ever made. Now, this is really a kind of uniquely tropical America, isn't it? Our United States in the tropics. It is. It's, uh, there's no other place like this. I don't know that, you know, is there a, a literary community like this anymore? Is, is Aspen that? Is it Provincetown? Mm-hmm. Is it... Well, I was going to ask you that. You got Paris in the 20s, Key West in the 70s. Where is it today? You know, I, I don't really know. I, I think we're all so isolated sitting behind our yeah. computers that we're not out, uh, you, know? you know, discussing art and literature the way they did in Paris or the way they did in, in Key West. Do you think in the 70s they knew it was a great time, like Paris in the 20s, or is that something you only know when you can have the benefit of history to look back on it? You know, that's a great question. I have a sense that they they knew it. But now they they love to reminisce about it. They love to remember those days. Mm-hmm. I think the main characters that I were talking to for this book, I think they loved telling these stories and, and the thought that it would be preserved in, mm-hmm. in something beyond their writing. There must be a powerful nostalgia. I mean, there were people in their creative prime, in their, in their early adulthood, down there in the 70s. Are some of them just kind of washed up and strolling the streets today and just thinking, man, it used to be so good? You know... I dealt mostly with this gang of, as I said, McGuane and Harrison and Chatham, and they all live in Montana now. If you wanted to go down there as a visitor, is there a, a festival time that's particularly uh, thriving? <laughs> or do you want to avoid Well, that? every every fall they have the uh, the Fantasy Fest, but uh, that's sort of a, an X-rated festival as far as I know. Uh, every November they have a festival called Meeting of the Minds. Well, wait a minute. Let's is... go back to the X-rated Fantasy Fest. What do you okay. mean? Well, uh, you know... Uh, this is public radio. You can talk about anything. Well, the, a lot of people just uh, march in the parade, and they're basically nude. Huh. And, you know, maybe they, they spray glitter on uh, <laughs> on certain portions of their bodies, but they're basically nude. And the book publisher was, was thinking about how we should do an event then for, you know, for selling my book when it came out. And I said, well, you know, the problem is where does a naked person keep their money? <laughs> you know, how can they buy a book? You know, where are they storing those credit cards? I don't want to know. The week following Fantasy Fest, usually, it depends on the year, uh, there's an event called Meeting of the Minds. And that's a much more harmless event. It's a, a gathering of all the Jimmy Buffett fans. It's sort of the uh, Parrothead Convention. Wow. And, of course, every July they have um, Hemingway Days, which, of course, Hemingway probably would have hated. But uh, you, you get a lot of people going around dressed like Ernest Hemingway in bush jackets and <laughs> white hair and beards. And I happen to be married in Key West during uh, Hemingway Days, so... Uh, I know what that's like. And that was a pretty festive atmosphere. But it seems like there's something going on there almost every week. And, you know, there are some very expensive resorts. And if you ask me, they're worth the money. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're beautiful places to stay. But there are also these nice, quiet little bed and breakfasts. I don't think it's possible to have anything other than a superior meal in Key West. Mm -hmm. I think it's a great place to go visit. I'm talking with Bill McKean. He's the author of Mile Marker Zero, A Movable Feast of Key West. Take us just for our last couple of minutes back to the historic roots of this unique culture. I mean, back 200 years ago, it was attracting pirates. Well, I really enjoyed learning about the the history of Key West and the the reason it was named Bone Island originally. And it was because there were bones all over the place. When the the first Spanish explorers found mounds of skeletons on the beach, and there was no explanation for it. It could have been some residue of an Indian war or something like that. But it was a center for piracy. And then an American businessman decided that he wanted to set up a town there and then turn it into a naval base, which it was for many years until the beginning of the early 70s. And so it's had these many incarnations over the years. It was a naval base. Then it was a cigar rolling center. It was uh, also the sponging capital of the world. It was this, it was that. At a time when it was still isolated, it was not connected Mm. to Florida by either rail Mm. or highway. It was the largest city in the state of Florida. So it's had this uh, long tradition of uh, reinvention, but it was always rooted in piracy. And so one of the things we discuss in the book is how a lot of the uh, the people that were the sort of the business class of Key West in the 70s were trying to deal with the loss of income when the Navy closed the big naval base there. And so out of their shops, their T-shirt shops and knick-knack shops and sandal shops, they sold drugs. That was how the economy was sort of stabilized for a while there in the 70s. You know, but that's that's in keeping with the culture of this town because it was kind of a pirate town. And I think that that's also part of the laissez-faire attitude of the island. It was yeah. just like, okay, 
Bubba, if that's what you need to do to keep your business uh-huh. afloat, then sell some marijuana. Good for you. No problem. And a lot of the police officers would kind of look the other way if they weren't participating. So it's a strange uh, and wonderful place. The Conk Republic. Bill, you mentioned in your, in your book that this whole Key West thing is kind of the, the story of people trying to find home. Yeah, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of these artists went there looking for something, and and I, th- I think in the case of Jimmy Buffett, he certainly found inspiration, and Buffett found more because when he went there, one of the first songs he wrote about Key West was called "I Have Found Me a Home," and he he turned Key West in song into this paradise of Margaritaville, which we've heard so many times in our life that we take it for granted, but it's just such a a beautifully written song with all kinds of great lines and real sensory images and and all of that. But the irony is that they went there looking for home, and then it got to a point where Jimmy Buffett couldn't live there anymore. People would come knock on his door, and and they expected him to be standing at the city limits to greet tourists when they arrived. Tom McGuane also found that it, you know he went there; it was his home. He wrote some of his greatest books there, but you know eventually he had to leave. So it's. Uh, you know, the the search for the home actually leads them somewhere else. And it's something I say about writing is that the story you start out to write isn't the story you always end up writing. And I think that's what they learned. They went there looking for something, and it turns out that <laughs> something was somewhere else. Bill McKean, author of Mile Marker Zero, The Movable Feast of Key West. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wolner at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to the Radio Foundation in New York and WBUR Boston for studio help this week and to Gretchen Straub for reading the travel haiku. Send us a haiku you've written about the impressions from your travels. There's a link in the radio section of ricksteves.com. And we'll see you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, a monthly travel newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your European travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next European adventure, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.